Hey folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on the Fat Burning Man Show, where we talk about real food and real results. Have you played outside today? Today, I have the very special privilege of introducing one of my very best friends from all time, Mr. Trevor Lowell. We go back so far, Trev and I, that he actually taught me how to blow bubbles in bubblegum and ride a bike without training wheels. I'm not making that up. This is totally true. Actually, this is worth knowing. He's one of the only people I've ever met in my life who rocked a bowl cut for years and totally pulled it off. Mr. Trevor Lowell is the Farm to Institution Program Manager for the State of Vermont's Agency of Agriculture, Food, and Markets, where he works as an educator and administrator. He's also a man of many talents, a great writer, an avid outdoorsman, and he knows how to play when he has to. He has his MA in Food Studies from NYU and has worked in various capacities across the food system from being a goat milker on an organic dairy farm in Montana to being a food policy researcher in New York City. Before we get to the show, let's share a quick review that just came in from Big Chuck 78 He says, I've been listening to Abel since he started, and I've bought multiple copies of The Wild Diet for family and friends. I was drinking Abel's fatty coffee before I'd ever heard of bulletproof coffee. Long story short, I was almost 400 pounds and I was diagnosed with diabetes in early 2018, and in six weeks, I put my diabetes in remission using information I learned from Abel's show with Jimmy Moore. Since then, I lost over 125 pounds in 2018, and I've got my life back. Abel's podcast has given me the resources and the knowledge for me to get back to my Army basic training weight from 22 years ago. I have 60 pounds left to hit my goal. This is my 2019 New Year's resolution. Thank you, Abel. I look forward to using your new products to accomplish all of my health and wellness goals. Man, Charles, you said so many things in there that, especially the first time I read it, really affected me. When I hear someone losing over 125 pounds, it's such a a life-changing amount and an uh, it can be spiritually expansive, you know, especially when you go from being in a position that's extremely challenging, like like the rock bottom of your health that so many people are at before they really start engaging and trying to get their health back. When you go from that and, and really start seeing some progress, I can't help but but really feel it with you. So rock on, Charles. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And if you're listening and you'd like to write in, please do. My direct email is able at fatburningman.com, but also all of your reviews, wherever you're watching or listening to this show, really helps. So just take a quick minute, leave a review, let me know how you're doing, if you've learned anything from this show. Also, don't forget to subscribe and share this free show with your friends, but definitely do not spam them. But if you'd like to be spammed, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter over at fatburningman.com. We've got a bunch of giveaways coming up. I'm sharing a lot of things just on that newsletter. We've already given away over 7,000 eBooks in multiple countries and counting. So if you'd like to get some of our free eBooks as well as free uh, signed copies of my new book, Designer Baby Still Get Scabies, make sure to sign up for the newsletter over at fatburningman.com. And 
Also, make sure you hang on the line for uh, a special reading from my new book of poetry at the end of this one. And, and great news about this, my new book, Designer Babies Still Get Scabies, is now a number one hot new release as well as a number one bestseller in humor and a number one bestseller in poetry in multiple countries, a lot of Europe, South America, and all over the place. Some of our cookbooks are number one in Japan. So I just want to say thanks to all of you who are really uh, engaging with our work. We have a lot more coming and there's a lot to look forward to. And if you'd like to join all the giveaways around the Designer Babies launch, make sure you go to designerbabiesbook.com. And once again, hang on to the end of this episode. I'll give you another special reading. And thank you so much for all the support and positive feedback so far. I know it's going to ruffle some feathers, but so far you guys have really enjoyed it and you've gotten the joke. So I appreciate that. All right. So on to the show with my buddy, Trevor Lowell. You're about to learn how our food system is governed, why soda is the number one commodity purchased through the SNAP food program, how to better vote with our forks, why protecting and preserving wild landscapes is critical to happiness, and tons more. Let's go hang out with Trev. All right, folks, Mr. Trevor Lowell is the sustainability director for the University of Montana's Dining Service, where he works as an educator and an administrator. His work is centered on creating a more just food system that supports shared values around societal, environmental, and human health. Trevor has an MA in food studies from New York University and has worked in various capacities across the food system, from a goat milker on an organic dairy in Montana to a food policy researcher in New York City. Trevor grew up in central New Hampshire and now lives with his lovely wife in Missoula, Montana, where the vast tracts of public land support his love for the outdoors. He's a dear old friend who goes so far back that Trev literally taught me how to ride a bike without training wheels, play Ninja Gaiden on original Nintendo, and blow bubbles in bubblegum. Trevor, thank you so much for being here. Hey, AJ. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So it was really fun to read what you sent over, you know, as, as topics that we could talk about, because obviously we've been friends for a long time, but you as a professional have been doing some really cool work. And one, one particular sentence that really stuck out to me was, our food system is a direct reflection of the interests of those who hold the most power in our democracy. So Kim, let's just start right there. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the the multitude of issues in our food system, whether through a nutrition lens, an environmental impact lens, a sort of social justice lens, and you walk all of those issues back and try to find really where the root cause of that problem is, you sort of get back to this, this issue of the fact that we don't have a food system that reflects the needs of our constituents, of our communities. We have a food system that reflects the needs of the people who have the most influence over Congress. And mm -hmm. those people are lobbyists in industries and corporations with a lot of money to throw around. So you look at how those policies are developed and they usually start with good intent and then they sort of go through that really bureaucratic and sort of arduous filter of lobbying and discussions and committees. And by the time they come out, they've been altered from sort of best case, best intent to you know, how can we design this to benefit the people with the most influence? Um, you know, I think about that classic example of how um, they 
they argued that pizza was a vegetable when right. they were redoing the school lunch uh, regulations because it had tomato sauce on it. And so that allowed them to qualify, you know, what is generally fairly unhealthy into the category of vegetables so that they could meet the quota for the school lunch program. No dietitian, no nutritionist, no public health professional would in their right mind argue that that's sound policy. Mm -hmm. um, but when you filter it through that process and you have all those people influencing that process, that's sort of the outcome that happens. And it seems to happen to almost every system from like all, all sides. Is there any hope? How do, how do we correct that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point not to be despondent. I mean, it's easy to sort of get sucked into that. Um, but the really cool thing about food is it, it is one of those things, right? It's a common, it's the universal common denominator. And that's what's so interesting to me about it, right? Like we all eat. And so it's such a personal thing. It's such a thing tied to memory and nostalgia and family and community. And it's something that you have to engage with on a daily basis as a consumer, as an eater. So if you think about the amount of times you get a, a decision and a sort of an influence over that system, however small that is, it's, you know, a couple times a day, several times a week, hundreds, thousands of times a year, us as consumers um, and as citizens have an ability, even if it's just a decision you make at the grocery store, the effort you put in to understand the transparency of your own community food system, um, you have so many opportunities to do that. And I think that that's probably one of the things that's most engaging about the food movement, right, is that like it is this sort of critical mass of people that's been growing that sort of as these issues get more light and come out of the shadows, people start to care more about it. Um, and I think you've seen a lot of changes and a lot of things pushing back against that that system that isn't you know reflective of really what a great values-based food system would be. Right. We see a lot of top-down instead of bottom-up action such that we're subsidizing junk food, whether we voted for that or not. It's like our tax dollars are going to that. And it's, it's uh, before this call, we were talking about buying a house and all of that. And uh, most of the years, I'm, I'm pretty open about this. We about break even. We had one good year when I was on that TV show, and I paid more in taxes that year than I paid for my first house. And uh, we still don't own a house, and that's one of the reasons we don't is because we paid so much in taxes that year. And I know that those taxes are going to missiles, and they're going to a food industry or an agricultural industry that's, that's fueled by pesticides and chemical companies and GMOs, and uh, they're putting that into school. So uh, one thing that we haven't really gotten into too much, especially on, on this show, is, uh, is like the SNAP program, for example, what you sent over. Um, about the amount of money that's spent and the types of food that it's spent on. Can you just fill mm. people in about how that's working right now or not, or not working as the case may be? Yeah, I mean, it, the SNAP program is the vast majority of the Farm Bill funding. So if you look at what we spend annually right now on SNAP, it's about, on food alone, it's a little over $60 billion a year. Um, that's a huge amount of Food. It's a huge amount of consumer purchases. There are mm -hmm. 43 million people that are participating in this program. And I think the most egregious thing about this is that we don't know where that money goes. That information is out there, 
But we have legally been prohibited from looking at where those SNAP dollars are being spent. So which stores are benefiting from this? What type of items are being purchased using SNAP dollars? That's really valuable data, right? Mm -hmm. If we're spending $60 billion a year, it'd be great. It's taxpayer money. It'd be great to know where that money is going and who's benefiting from that. Right. So there's been some research where they've done some studies, but the frustrating thing is, is that, you know, Walmart has this information. Albertsons mm -hmm. has this information. Safeway has this information. It's even aggregated higher up at the companies like JP Morgan Chase does a lot of the contracts for EBT cards. So that mm -hmm. just the credit card transfers there. Mm -hmm. That information exists. And there has been, um, you know, a lot of fights in the court system to try to get hold of that. And actually, the Supreme Court is going to hear a case in April about um, a newspaper that's been fighting for years through Freedom of Information Act to try to get hold of that. But if you start thinking about that amount of money and then how that translates to purchases and then the impact that that has on consumer health, there's a lot of salient arguments about, you know, maybe we should be limiting what can be purchased with SNAP, right? So you can't buy tobacco, you can't buy alcohol, and you can't buy hot prepared foods. Mm -hmm. That seems reasonable, right? We, why would we allow people to buy tobacco and make themselves more sick. Right. Well, now is a lot of the research is coming out and really fortifying around the impact of sugar sweetened beverages. You can make the same argument for soda. Like why mm -hmm. there is some, you know, research suggesting that that's the number one commodity purchased with SNAP dollars. Right. So, you know, we're paying $60 billion a year to, you know, help people get access to crap food. <laughs> it's like the tax money is coming from both sides. Right. It's like right. it's amazing. It's brilliant the way that it's set up, if it's supposed to be set up that way. But uh, in a true democracy, no, that's not how it should work. Right. And it's you know, I think it's important to keep in mind some of the you know, there's more elements to that. Sure. issue, Right. Sure. Like a lot of it is access. You know, yeah. I think it's really easy. Like Snap especially gets a lot of flack for just being a social welfare program. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of that flack like comes down on the users and people think that it's abused and that it's, you know, it's just, um, you know, perpetuating this cycle of sort of people who don't take initiative for themselves. And the reality is that the abuse of the system is very low. They study it every mm -hmm. year. They report on it every year. Um, there's there's a it's a really complex issue. But I think at a minimum, we should see where that money's going. Yeah. You know, you get to this argument, you look at Walmart and you start to think about how many of Walmart's employees are on SNAP dollars themselves, yeah. right? Because Walmart doesn't pay a living wage in a lot of places. They've actually been accused of actively trying to keep people at a certain amount of income so that they don't have to do these things. Right. And they are largely considered to be the biggest financial beneficiary of SNAP dollars. Right. So Subsidizing Walmart. And Great. yeah, through two different channels, right? Yeah. We're allowing them to keep their wages low and we're subsidizing their employees because they can't make a living there. Yep. And then they get all the profits from the SNAP dollars. Right. Well, even just, you know, I read recently that Amazon just pays no taxes. <laughs> billions and billions and billions of dollars. Everyone uses, you know, like half of Americans right now are using Amazon in their like prime program, giving them over $100 every year. It's like no taxes. So things like this, um, you know, obviously they're not talked about that much publicly, but they should be, right? This is our opportunity to say, no, <laughs> like, let's right. make a better system than this. 
Right. Yeah. And I think it does come back to sort of like who holds the power, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the reasons these changes haven't happened is because there are a lot of Congress people who get a lot of money from Walmart and their lobbyists and a lot of money from Amazon and their lobbyists. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know about you, but I haven't found the money to buy my own lobbyists yet. Right. Um, maybe, maybe we could start a pool. Yeah. With our tax dollars. Yeah. <laughs> but it does it does seem very backwards um what are some of the other things though uh because you're you're working for good in a system that isn't necessarily set up for that so to use some examples of of your professional work in montana with with uh food sustainability and all that like what are some of the more promising things that we can focus on yeah i mean there's a lot of great people who are working hard on this issue so i sit on the board of a nonprofit called the community food and agriculture coalition and we have a program called double snap dollars it's a program that's been um, set up in a lot of different states around the country and what it does is say you go to the farmer's market and you're a snap recipient you we set up a booth at the market you want to take twenty dollars of your monthly snap allotment out to then shop at the market. So you might want to turn that into tokens or um, whatever that is. And so we will double whatever money you take out and then allow you, give you tokens to use those that money on fruits and vegetables from farmers at the farmer's market. So it has this great sort of dual purpose, right? We're getting people who are helping SNAP recipients double their money, double their purchases, mm-hmm. but we're also giving them you know, we're directing that money towards um, very nutritious food, fresh fruits and vegetables that are showing up weekly at the farmer's market. And then the sort of third benefit of this is that the farmers and people who go there to sell their goods are benefiting economically from the SNAP recipients who are getting this extra money. And so those folks, you know, we've done a lot of great surveying of that program and looking at the impact it's had on diets. Um, and we're finding that it's, it's really meaningful for people in the Missoula community um, and the other communities where we're trying to sort of pilot this. Um, and the farmers love it too, right? And it helps change and sort of erode some of that stigma, I would think, around SNAP users. Because instead of this idea that, oh, you know, you're just, you know, whatever that sort of negative connotation may be, they are coming to their booths and they're buying loads of their fresh produce and they're having these conversations about how great the vegetables are and how excited they are to use them. Um, and so, you know, there's some really interesting programs like that. There's a hospital in town that's starting to look at doing prescription vegetables, right? So instead of getting a script for, you know, diabetes or hypertension or stuff like that, if you're the right type of candidate, they'll write you a, a voucher to go to the market and buy fruits and vegetables and eat wow. healthier. Yeah. Which is a hell of a lot cheaper than taking, you know, hypertension medication or taking yeah. any thing. So if we can, you know, again, it fits into that preventative health mode, but um, you know, think ideas like that that are really creative and finding ways to like not only support nutrition, but like support local economies too, right? Like if we yeah. want a better food system, we need to sort of pay for that. We need to have people willing and the functioning economy to support that. Right. And when you do, good things happen for that very community as opposed to thinking, even when we were growing up, we went to public elementary school together and um, we didn't have much money uh, during that time, went through some rough times financially. So I remember 
we were considering doing the free lunch program. And the reason that we didn't, even though we kind of needed to, like money-wise, was just because it was, you remember those foods. It was Sloppy Joe's. It was like the worst pizza you've ever had. It was French fries. It was those little, I don't even know what you call them, Dude, the, the French the, toast sticks. The bag of milk that you just didn't step <laughs> the up. Milk. That was the worst idea ever. Um, but anyway, it's a matter of access as well. It's, it's like you don't want to be shipping all of these fake foods from across the world or, or even across the country that are subsidized. It's just terrible coming from cans and all of this. It's like when there are vegetables literally right right there. Like, for example, my, my wife Allison, her folks back in Arizona live on a, a small grapefruit orchard. And if you go into even the Sprouts Farmer's Market right there or the Whole Foods or whatever – their grapefruit are not from anywhere close to down the street. Like we're driving from a grapefruit orchard to Whole Foods to buy grapefruit from thousands of miles away. And it's insane. But mm-hmm. from, from the bottom up, there are a lot of things um, that local communities can do to make this uh, so much better. Like I remember at, at college, Dartmouth had its own uh, organic farm. And a lot of uh, my friends would, would work there and, and – uh, not all of the veggies, obviously, but some of the veggies came from that farm to that school. And there are these programs, at least at a small level, that can be set up to, uh, to bring community back into food. Because that's really one of the things that's been ripped out of it, I think you can agree, in the past few decades. And, uh, but I remember you know, growing up at, at your house, having the family me- meal was always so incredible. I mean, your mom, Carrie was a, a caterer and uh, made just like these outrageously wonderful meals. And uh, I know I, I probably wouldn't be doing the show if it weren't for dinners like that, not just at my parents' house, but at like a lot of people's different houses, right? And uh, so building that back in is so important. I think the, the work you're doing is really helping. Yeah, and I think, you know, what's what I see oftentimes too is that we think about creating a better food system and we think it's sort of the two poles of that supply chain or that system, right? We think about the consumer end and we think about the producer end, but really what the, a lot of the barriers are, where they are, are sort of those steps in between, right? So you go to the supermarket and buy grapefruit from thousands of miles away. That's probably because they have distribution models that fit with the supermarket's requirements and they have insurance and liability that fits with the supermarket requirements and they have Asset plans and food safety, and they've you know they've um, sort of met all of those often onerous things, which you know are are there for for some good reasons. But when you look at small scale agriculture, like again, that system is really designed for an industrial food system, right? Because you're creating so much product so quickly. Like I was just reading how there are a couple of poultry plants, processing plants um, that have filed for waivers to increase their speed lines. So how many birds per minute they can do. And it's like 176 birds per minute is how many they're allowed to process. Wow. And you think about like, you know, when you have a system like that, if something goes wrong, you've now poisoned like hundreds of thousands of people. Right. Right. And I think that you know, again, so you're taking these regulations that are sort of built for this really large industrial system, and then you're sort of blanket applying them across all these smaller systems, and you're cutting people out, you're blocking them out. Um, one of the things that's been really cool about Missoula, we have a growers cooperative here. So they play this middleman role. So it's owned by the farmers, and they all have, you know, voting rights, and they're members of this organization, but it's a for-profit business. 
And what they do is they play the role of distribution and marketing for all these farmers. So at the university, we buy a lot of our produce from them whenever we can. And they carry all the necessary like liability insurance and health requirements that we need as a state institution. Um, but they also make it feasible for us to procure food from local farmers. Because instead of me calling 25 different farmers and saying, okay, give me 10 pounds of tomatoes from you and I'll get 20 pounds of tomatoes from you. And they're all harvested at different times and they're all dropped off at different times. I can call the growers co-op and they've aggregated all that food and they have a purchase list and I can go online and I can say, Hey Dave, you know, like, can I get, you know, 150 pounds of tomatoes on Thursday? And he can say, sure, I'll send the refrigerated delivery truck to your loading dock. Wow. Um, and those are some of the things we think about, like creating a better system, like how are we going to build in, like fill in the middle a lot. Yeah. And, and for you, just the logistical part of feeding that many people at the university, I, I can't imagine. So could, could you walk us through a little bit about how all that works? Yeah. I mean, it's really exciting, right? Like I, I had a graduate school professor who was really famous for saying, you know, we should, we want a better food system. We have to vote with our fork. Right. right. And I think what's so cool at the institutional level is we have big forks, right? We can go mm -hmm. out and really have a big impact on, on our local food economies and, um, you know, local producers. And at the university right now, we've got like a little under 10,000 undergrad, and then you add on a few thousand graduate and doctorate students, and then faculty and staff that eat with us. We're serving thousands of meals a day. Yeah. So, you know, we, are constantly trying to walk this line. We're a customer service business at the end of the day, right? People buy our product, they buy our meal plans, they come and patron our retail environments. And so we have to sort of provide what they need, but we're also constantly trying to sort of nudge them and push them in ways to make better decisions, whether yeah. they know it or not, right? Yeah. So we have a great program with some local ranches that do grass-finished beef. Montana does a lot of beef, but most of it's cow-calf, and that stuff leaves the state and then goes to feedlots, gets fattened into commodity beef, and then sort of hits that market. And we work with a number of ranchers, Yellowstone grass-fed beef. Um, we work with a family called the Mannix family up in Helmville. And, you know, these guys are really trying to do it differently, and they're trying to find a sustainable way to sustainable markets for their products. And so we buy a lot of this grass-finished beef. If you walk into our cafeteria, we serve pasture-raised pasture grass-finished beef all day long, every day. Wow. So a lot of students don't even realize that. You yeah. know, they order a cheeseburger or whatever, and we grill it up for them. And, um, you know, that's top-shelf, amazing beef product. Yeah. And then, uh, but it's definitely costs us more, right? Mm -hmm. So then it's like, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you make that work? We're a state institution, right? We're not your Stanford's and your Yale's and your Harvard's that may have the money to sort of really put towards this. Right. And um, so one of the cool things we've done is we started mixing the beef with like one third mushrooms. And so, you know, we'll take a couple ounce, like a four ounce burger and we'll do three ounces of, of ground and then we'll do an ounce of mushrooms. We'll mix that up. Most people don't even taste it really. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's sort of what we call like stealth health because we're cool. reducing how much red meat they're eating. Mm -hmm. And I think like overall, that's a good thing. Americans eat three times the global average of meat per mm -hmm. capita. So 
we're helping cut down on that a little bit. We're helping cut down on the cost too. So it makes that program a little more feasible because we save an ounce of red meat every burger that goes out the door. And that's such a great example of how to do it too because like if you were um, really on, on the capitalist side, if you were McDonald's, you'd be filling it up with some really cheap garbage filler, like literally sawdust or flour of the worst kind or, or something else like that. But there is a uh, a way to do it in a, in a healthy way, just, and, and almost invisible, right? You just have to know a little bit about what you're doing. Like it's gotta be mushrooms. It can't be avocado or something, right? Like you, <laughs> you've got to work that part out. Yeah. And I think it's, what's really cool, especially like if you think about our public institutions, right? Mm-hmm. These are, these aren't for-profit businesses. Like my job isn't to maximize profit for anybody. Right. My job is to help educate our students community members about issues that are happening in our food system, um, get people to think about eating healthier, get people to think about their impacts on the environment. But, you know, if I was McDonald's, I wouldn't have a job, right? Because they mm-hmm. would be looking at like, well, what's your ROI? You know, right. how are you adding value to this operation? I think if we look at our public institutions, they're spending billions of dollars across the country a year on food, right? So that money also is you know, to large extent, taxpayer funded. Um, and if we think about like, if the only, if the only measure of success is how much money you're saving or making, you know, your expenses and your revenues and looking at your food costs, we're missing so many opportunities to really impact things for better and to make changes. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge part of what we do at UM Dining is like, you know, we buy three and a half million dollars of the food every year. So if I can go out and direct a lot of that as much as that is possible to farmers and ranchers who are using better practices, who are treating their animals better, who are paying living wages for their employers, who are treating the land better, who are adding value to our community, like why wouldn't you do that, right? Yeah. I think you run into like the the immediate rebuttal is the financial one, right? It's like, well, we can't do that. We're gonna. There's no way we can source grass-finished beef. There's no way we can source local fruits and veggies. Like it's just not possible. And I, I would challenge anybody to sort of rethink that because we started the farm to college program at UM Dining in 2003, and our food costs have gone down as our local purchases have gone up. Hmm. Um, and so you know that's not necessarily like oftentimes we like pay more for grass-finished beef. We often pay more for local produce. But there are lots of creative ways to, to, to make it work, you know? And I think that the example that we've set in some other institutions is that like, it can be done and it should be done, right? We're talking about huge potential impact. So if, if uh, people are listening right now and they're just like, well, geez, this kind of seems like a mess, but I, I must be able to do something. What can they do to, to say, you know, this system isn't working for me or to vote for the right system? Yeah, I mean, I think it takes a little bit of legwork. It takes people caring. So if you've gotten to that point, you're already like halfway there. If you if you give a crap about it, like good. Now, like the question of what do you do? I think a lot of it is is transparency, like seeking out what's actually going on behind the scenes and who's actually benefiting from these things. Mm-hmm. The really exciting thing about this day and age is that there are tons of organizations and people that really care about this stuff. You yeah. know, and so. I would I would venture to bet that like there are people in your community, organizations, nonprofits that are finding ways to impact their local food systems and thinking about ways to, to make that better. So seek them out 
and like get the story from them. Who's doing what? What's working? How can I help? You know? And I think that like the more that you can do that, like don't reinvent the wheel because again, there are those folks who are sort of out there with that knowledge. So seek that knowledge out. And then if you can, like make those better decisions. Like once you've figured out that you've sort of gotten some level of transparency and some understanding about your own food system, like make decisions that positively affect that. You know, it, it's crazy to me that we celebrate this idea that we spend less of our disposable income on food than at any point in American history, maybe yeah. like in the world, if you could somehow quantify that. Sure. Um, that's a, you know, it's a really good thing. If you think about that from a standpoint of like hunger and access and stuff like that. But at the same time, we've devalued it, right? Yeah. Like we complain if we go to the store and a dozen eggs is like three bucks, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh my God. Or like a, a loaf of bread is more than a buck fifty, and we've all been sort of fooled into thinking that that's the actual cost of this food. Yeah, you know, like I was talking to somebody and they sort of sheepishly admitted that they were in a hurry and they ran through the McDonald's drive-through the other day. Yeah. They were like, I "Just needed some food," and I was right there, and I was like, "It's okay," you know, <laughs> like I can judge you. But they got a McChicken sandwich, and they came up for the drive-through, and it was a dollar fifty. Wow. It's like, how can you kill a chicken, mash it up with like sawdust and other things, fry it, get some bread, <laughs> add some mayonnaise, some iceberg lettuce, how, and then like pay somebody to do that mm-hmm. and the whole supply chain that that's involved in that. And it's a, and you're making money, you know, yeah. you're like a hugely profitable business and it's a buck 50 for a chicken sandwich. Right. Well, I think that's a good, good example of food is not a commodity. As much as we want to commoditize it, anything, it's like a chicken sandwich is not a chicken sandwich if it's got sawdust in it and if it's got all this glutamate and, and all these chemicals that we don't, haven't studied, the, the, you know, like we don't even know are in there. They're not disclosed and all this other stuff. And, and it's like it's called a chicken sandwich, but your body doesn't see it that way, you know? Like yeah. Once it goes down the gullet, there's a different thing going on. Uh, you know, if someone gets a chicken sandwich in your calf compared to McDonald's. And it's important that we recognize that, that the $3 eggs are not the same as the pasture-raised eggs that you'd get from your farmer. They're not eggs. <laughs> you know, it's like right. you, you crack them open. They don't look the same. One's all mucusy and, you know, like pale. And the other one is vibrant and sticks together. And it's not the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think one of the nice things about these problems, too, is that there's so much overlap, right? So it's like... A lot of what you've done around nutrition education and helping people think more critically about that overlaps with these goals of like building local ag economies. Yeah. Right. So like if you want food that's better for you, like do the transparency research. And the good thing about that is that food that's better for you is probably better for your community, too. Yeah. And it's better for your local economy. It's better. You know, you're supporting these people who aren't just giving you more nutritious food but are giving you a stronger economy, a stronger community. Yeah. Now let's shift gears a little bit because we actually are coming up on time. I can't believe it. But um, I can't think of a better person to talk about a love of the outdoors and the importance of that. Because actually when I think about our friendship, I I would definitely wager that the vast majority of it was outside <laughs> if you logged the hours, <laughs> right? We grew up outside. We played outside. I mean, we played Nintendo too and we ate inside or whatever. But it it's... it's um, it was so ingrained in us growing up, whether we liked it or not, that it's a part of who we are to this day. So I'd like, why don't you just like go at bat for Mother Nature for a second? Like, why should we even care? Man, I, 
you know, I was talking to a friend about this years ago, and I didn't realize that there's, I, I'm a fairly secular person, you know, I, I would call myself spiritual in certain ways, but I, I sort of shy away from any sort of organized religion. And sure. um, I was, I talk about nature, I think, in the way that Christians talk about Jesus, you know, mm -hmm. to me, like, I imagine that it sort of fulfills them in the way, it, like that fulfills them in the way it might fulfill me. Yeah. Um, being outside, like being reminded of sort of how you fit into the whole picture of things. Like we live out here in Montana and there are grizzly bears and you walk out into the mountains and you have to be fairly vigilant because yeah. like to be out in the world and to realize like you're not the top of the food chain, like is a really refreshing idea. It is. Like we, our culture and our society does a lot of work to sort of make us feel like special snowflakes. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, we're really important. And then you walk out in the woods and you spend time in that solitude and among that system and you see how everything's connected and how, you know, predators eat prey and then all these different cycles of life exist. And you realize that like, oh, I'm, I'm a part of this, right? Like I'm not this like separate entity from the natural world. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, I make it a point every year to try to s escape for like four or five day solo backpacking trip. I'm very fortunate to live here in Missoula and have access to public land. And, you know, I'll take the dog and some food and fishing pole and just walk off in the wilderness. And it is, it is the most cathartic thing I do all year long. You know, I come back from that having hit this incredible reset button. And I realized like, you know, even you think about how our attention span is being fractured by yeah. having a phone in our pocket all the time and the internet just giving us 30 seconds of entertainment until we're ready to like skip to the next meme or whatever it is. You go out in the woods for four or five days and there's like nothing to do except just like walk or fish or like sit down and listen to what's going on. All of a sudden your attention span starts to like swell again and you yeah. feel this wow, I can, you know, like I can pay attention to stuff. I could maybe read a book out here, you know, like <laughs> what a novel experience. <laughs> it is. What, um, when you come back from the woods, um, what changes in you or what do you notice, um, that maybe you didn't notice before? I, th I think primarily it helps me sort of put my ego where it needs to be. Yeah. You know, I think that that's, that's the biggest benefit. I was going to try to sum that up. Like, I, I don't think ego is across the board a bad thing. You know, mm -hmm. I think we do a lot of good things in our own self-interest, but it's really important to pay attention to and to figure out like, why are you doing what you do? And when I come back from the woods, you know, even this little stuff and driving around town and somebody cuts me off, it's like, eh, it's no big deal. You know, mm -hmm. versus like if I had had that experience pre going out in the woods, I probably would have been like, oh, this jerk, you know, like, right. And, and then you internalize that. And then that causes stress and anxiety and all this sort of cascading of negative effects. And, you know, when I come back, I've, I've shed a lot of that, right? Mm -hmm. Like I realized that, you know, the world is big and it's broad and you're just this like little piece in it. Yeah. And that's like actually really comforting to think about sometimes. Like, we don't have to take on this like, oh, I need to be like out in the world and I need to be noticed and I need to have like 
people like me and all these things. Like you can just go out there and sort of be like, oh, I can be a quiet part of this system. Yeah, it helps you realize how much of an illusion our culture really is. You know, um, you don't even have to use English or words when you're out in nature. You're just a part of it. You're there. It's, it, it happens. And uh, for me, I know it's it's one of those things. That we don't have grizzlies here in Colorado, but we do have a lot of mountain lions. And uh, to your point, it's... <laughs> Which one is the real world where someone's calling you names online and making you feel sad or the mountain lion that could pounce on you because they can jump 30 feet? Um, yeah. it, it really helps put things into perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that um, it's just humbling and we all need to be humble every once in a while. We do. But also integrated in, into something like we have a bunch of bird feeders here. So we see dozens and dozens of different species of, of birds and, and rodents and other animals and whatever that, that come. And uh, one thing that really strikes me as, as a difference from that natural world is that aside from the predator prey relationship, which really is, is much more rare than people realize nature is so cooperative. These animals aren't bickering and calling each other's names and, and, you know, like trying to punch each other or fighting for sports teams. It's like they're all hanging out and eating a peanut and letting the other, you know, birds or deer or whatever eat some peanuts, too. And they're all they seem cool with that. And just the amount of cooperation in the natural system, I think, is such a great example of how this all should work. It shouldn't be all these, you know, companies fighting against each other, or institutions fighting for for tax money or whatever, like in in the natural sense this can all work quite well yeah yeah to think about it something else than like a zero-sum game you know Mm -hmm. like my success is dependent on somebody else's failure in a way and i think like you know for sure the natural world is brutal like people things eat things you know Mm -hmm. and they hunt them down and they kill them but like i think about that a lot you go out in the woods and you watch you know, like a squirrel can go up to a deer and the deer doesn't care. Right. But you can't walk up to a deer. Right. Because that deer like knows, he knows that like you're sort of part of this other world and I don't quite trust you. And Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that's sort of indicative of that. It is. And, and humbling in its own way. It's heartbreaking. Right. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to eat you. I promise. Right. But um, but no animals, they all seem to know that humans are the most dangerous animal on Earth. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it didn't used to be that way. The, the, the natives supposedly were living in, in North America for four to 14,000 to four million years, depending on who you ask. You know, not perfectly, I'm sure, but maybe a little bit more in touch with the natural world. So if there is one, one thing that we can be optimistic about, we do have some models of ways that things can work. Um, and, and I think most of us can agree that the systems that supposedly are serving us right now are not serving us, but, uh, but we can help correct them. We just have to put our foot down and, and start to do some ground up work like you, Trev. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think it takes, it takes all of us really to sort of care first. And I think it's cool to see more and more people really caring about these impacts and, um, and yeah, it's, it's really inspiring to be living in this day and age where like, you can share this information so readily and you can sort of build these communities, be it online, be it like tangible people in your own town who are really passionate about this stuff, you know? And like, like that is so much more rewarding to like go for me to go and talk to a rancher and be like, Hey, I want to buy your beef. And like, you know, or like, Hey, can we, can we get some of your pigs and make these connections and see them be like, Oh, you're going to go serve this to students. And then they're going to like, 
you're going to teach them how it came from down the road and how we like have heritage breed hogs that we raise on our farm and they're not like in ferro crates rolling over on their young and killing them and getting pumped full of chemicals to stay alive. Like they're so excited to just be part of that connection and that community, you know? And so not just supporting them, but also like getting people to think about that, right? Like we've, that's the industrial food systems done such a good job of divorcing us from all the things that happen before that piece of meat gets shrink racked onto a piece of styrofoam, you know, like, and that's very intentional, right? Like yeah. that's, that's, there's a reason for that. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're just about out of time, Trevor, but um, if you could, before we go, just tell folks uh, if they're interested in the type of work that you're doing, um, what they can do themselves, where they can find you and whatever else you might want to mention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if you're interested in what UM Dining is up to, you can check out our webpage. It's called JustEatsMT.com. There's a lot of different program areas and ways that we're plugging in with food and sustainability. Um, you know, I would encourage anybody to, if you, whatever community you're in, to seek out people. I think um, for me here in Missoula, the Community Food and Agriculture Coalition is is really doing this this great job of looking holistically at the Missoula and the Western Montana food system, finding where the problems are and trying to close those gaps. Yeah. Um, and then I would also like, man, public lands are wonderful, but they are under attack. Mm-hmm. You know, we have our own um, Zinke, the um, Secretary of the Interior from Montana, this sort of like pseudo cowboy mm-hmm. has been trying to sell off BLM lands and shrink national monuments and stuff like that. So, you know, I would take it for granted. I do because I live out here where there's so much access to it, yeah. but those are your lands, you know, like fight for them, go out and enjoy them, recreate them, but don't let people sell them off the oil and gas interests. Yeah. Um, if you want to, you know, find some organizations that are doing really good work around that. I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Cottonwood Environmental Law Clinic. Um, it's really one maniacal attorney who's been, you know, heroically fighting the the sort of the big powers that be and preserving tens of thousands of acres of public land and doing some really good work. So, and there's a lot of them out there, but don't take that stuff for granted because. Um, you know, there's value in that and there's people sort of nipping at the corners and trying to eat into that. Yeah. Well, Trevor, I, I couldn't be more proud of you and the work that you're doing. Please, anyone who's listening or watching, go check out uh, Trev's work. I can't wait to go on our next hike. It's been way too long. Thanks so much for coming yeah. on the show, man. It's great to talk to you, man. I hope to see you soon. Well, hey there, this is Abel James once again with a special reading from my brand new book, now a number one hot new release and number one bestseller in humor in multiple countries. It's called Designer Babies Still Get Scabies. And I'm going to start off with one called Music from the Weeds. Creeping, sneaking from the ground, out peak fox eyes to look around, furry ears perk up to hear the sound of sweet singing from the trees, of beautiful music from the weeds. When fox scampers down his hole for shelter from the rain, he doesn't even notice all the cranes. Creeping, sneaking from the ground, out peak fox eyes to look around, and ears perk up to reveal no more singing from the trees. No more music from the weeds, only gleaming steel. A little bit of a downer, so let's let's pick it up here. This one goes out to all the old friends out there. 
give me a holler. And the young friends, for that matter. Had a couple hits, made a couple dollars. To tell you truly, though, I never felt smaller. You don't need to be no baller. Anytime, old friend, just give me a holler. And finally, this one uh, is a little longer, but I actually, so throughout this book, I have at least a half dozen of these that I wrote when I was in middle school. I think it was seventh or eighth grade. I have another one or two in here that's written in high school, actually. And sometimes they're more of the politically charged ones, believe it or not, which work as well now as they did back then. Some, some of them even better, it seems like. But anyway, this one is called Monday Morning. I roll out of bed this morning, by far my biggest mistake. I trip over my bedstand thanks to a throbbing headache. The alarm is sent flying as bright light jabs my eyes. I stumble down the stairs to our creepy cat who cries, Meow! <laughs> I go fetch some cream for a cranky, spoiled cat while Big Brother screams, Get me my breakfast, you brat! So I grab a few eggs I'm ready to cook. I can't find the spatula, but I'm too tired to look. There it is on the floor. I found it all right. So I cook up the eggs, but as I take my first bite, in tromps the dog. Oh, great, I exclaim, since she's muddy and soaked from the morning's hard rain. So as I was saying, just my luck, she shakes off all over me and I can't even duck. I'm all soaked and wet. Breakfast went to the dogs. Even the leftovers are gone. My family ate it, the hogs. I'm tired. I'm aching, hungry, and soaked. It's only getting worse, regretting I ever woke. So I sit here just wishing I'd never even left bed when along comes cheery mother. Good morning, she said. So even if it's Monday out there in the virtual interwebs, this is Abel James signing off and wishing you the very best. Thanks again, and take care. This episode is brought to you by Wild Superfoods. Let's start with a quick question. Do health supplements really work? After testing many hundreds of tonics, supplements, powders, and potions over the past seven plus years, my wife Allison and I have found very few companies that we actually trust. Massive, faceless corporations seem to be running the show, often prioritizing profits well above our collective health. Many supplements in stores and online are of extremely low quality, are ridiculously overpriced, and some don't even contain the active ingredient they're supposed to be selling. We all deserve much better. That's why my wife, Allison, and I created Wild Superfoods. We're a small family business, and we take our own products daily because we think they're the best out there. Our Ultimate Daily Bundle provides you with a complete supplement regimen that you can trust to deliver maximum health benefits without the guesswork. Whether you're looking for Mega Omegas, Vitamin D Stack, Probiotic Spheres, or Future Greens, our cutting-edge supplements have you covered. And as a listener of Fat Burning Man, you can save over $80 on a one-time purchase or save over $128 when you select subscribe and save. All you have to do is head on over to wildsuperfoods.com. You can type it into your address bar right now to order your very own health-boosting goodies for a rocking listener discount for a limited time. And as always, if you don't love any of our products from Wild Superfoods, then you get your money back. So one more time, all you have to do to check it out 
is visit wildsuperfoods.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you there. Well, hey there, listener. This is Abel one more time, and I just want to say thank you for listening to this episode of the Fat-Burning Man Show. If you liked it, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you might be listening to or watching this show right now. And if you have a second, please leave me a quick review for the Fat-Burning Man Show. I read every single one of them, and every time you leave a review, it gives us a little boost in the rankings, and that helps other people find this show. And if you can think of someone else who might enjoy and benefit from this free show, please take a second to share it with a friend or a family member. And if they're like, what is this fat-burning man thing? That's a really silly name. You could be like, you're right, but here's the deal. We've recorded over 250 episodes of the Fat-Burning Man Show with thought leaders in health from all over the world. And so far, we've won four awards, hitting number one in health in more than eight countries internationally. We have more than 30 million downloads already, but we're just getting started. I can't believe any of this, by the way, and, and couldn't do any of this without you. So thanks once again. But here's some more good news. You can download and listen to every single episode of the Fat-Burning Man Show for free with zero outside advertisements, no outside sponsors, and no corporate overlords. All you have to do is type in fatburningman.com. We'll give you a, a second here just to type it in, fatburningman.com. And you'll get all the show notes, transcripts, and video and audio versions for all the past episodes of the Fat-Burning Man Show for free. Better yet, Enter your email at fatburningman.com, sign up for my newsletter, and I'll even send you a quick start guide so you can take your health into your own hands right now, along with a few of our ridiculously tasty recipes as a special thanks for signing up. Once again, just go to fatburningman.com right now, enter your best email to get your free goodies with a bonus surprise straight to your inbox. This is Abel James signing off. Thank you so much for listening once again and have a great week.